All right, so the verse theme for our sermon today is going to be from the book of Proverbs, chapter 29, verse 2. Uh, since I'm not leading us through an entire book of the Bible, like we're not going through a series like through James or what have you right now, um, it's going to be more of a topical sermon this morning. So there's going to be a, a bunch of different passages related to a biblical theology of government related to the lockdowns that, we're, that we've been under. So we're going to spend about a quarter of our time right at the beginning on a refresher on biblical civil governance principles. And then the rest of the sermon will be surveying the questions of the ethical legitimacy of the government shutdown. So our key verse again from Proverbs chapter 29 verse 2 Pretty straightforward. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Let us pray. Father, help us this morning as we look into your word and the principles that you have set forth for civil governance and how that relates to mass lockdowns. We pray that we would be grounded and informed by your word and not what seems right in our own eyes. We pray that we would be lights that light up the darkness for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's uh, obviously an understatement to say that our world has been t uh, turned upside down over the past four months in ways that none of us could have fully predicted. Many of us have endeavored to live our lives as normally as possible, but despite all of those efforts, our lives have been radically altered. By far the main way that our lives have been altered is not through the coronavirus itself, but by the shutdowns. And so if we want to advocate for justice and lawful love to our neighbor, if we want to be a prophetic witness to be able to speak consistently into the culture, we have to grapple with the ethics of these government shutdowns. Many of us have an idea of why we think the way we do about the morality of these lockdowns, and I'm sure those are informed by biblical principles, uh, but how rooted is that in scripture and how clear is that understanding? So like Bereans, we all need to study our Bibles to come to a right understanding on this. But today I hope to lay out some biblical parameters in order, in order to help guide that study. So, you know, don't take what I say for it, of course. Go and, and look and see if these things are true and in your, in your Bible. But I do want to uh, try to lay out some biblical parameters to help that effort. At the outset, something that's important, and before we try to address the biblical teaching on the subject of the lockdowns and applying uh, biblical truth to the lockdowns. I think it's important to remember that we are a people fully deserving of God's judgment and his covenantal sanctions for national disobedience. Regardless of its origins, the coronavirus and the ramifications that we're facing are not undeserved for us as a nation, a nation full of people who are fully intent on doing what seems right in their own eyes in a whole myriad of ways, right? And so I think that's pretty clear. Nevertheless, we still have to ask, are the lockdowns biblical? Sadly, for many Christians, the first problem we have is that this very question, is it biblical, is not at the forefront. And really, there's probably a dozen other uh, factors that are taking precedence. And so before we address the biblical law principles in play, we must address this tendency and what causes it. So I want to talk for a brief minute about the problem of pragmatism. One of the ways that the lockdowns are often justified is by sort of sidestepping questions about principled morality and ethics and skipping on to sort of a utilitarian moral framework where whatever course of action is determined to cause the least amount of harm, at least in the eyes of someone, to the least amount of people 
is chosen. And this sort of philosophy is not just in play with this issue, but it's actually frequently the hallmark of our decision-making process in secular society, human sentiment of the day. This framework is rife with problems both conceptually and if you look historically, the track record is abysmal of this kind of approach to, to um, making those kinds of decisions. Even if the world worked in such a way where it were ethically plausible to make decisions as a society on behalf of the masses as a collective, as opposed to individuals and families making the best choices with the information that they have, at the end of the day, we don't have access to all of the string of unintended consequences that these centralized decisions entail, nor the comprehensive data sets that would be required to make a good pragmatic decision on behalf of the entire collective. And this is one of the follies of pragmatism in the first place. We are not God and we are fallible and we are not omniscient. We don't have all information. We don't know, in many cases, we don't even know what we don't know. Um, so we're susceptible to error in this, way, in this way. We are susceptible to shocking levels of arrogance, confirmation bias, groupthink, self-deception, especially when central planners are involved in calling the shot. The, this is amplified. So if we're going to escape this labyrinth of pragmatism, we must first open up God's word. So before we get into the nitty gritty of the biblical law principles, uh, applied to the lockdown during a pandemic. Let's engage in a small refresher on biblical civil government uh, principles. And there are two main principles to remember. You could do a, easily do a sermon series on biblical government. And we're just going to touch on this. But there's two uh, big principles to remember when we're talking about biblical civil law principles. The first point is that as we determine which biblical standards apply for civil magistrates today, we fail if our starting point is to immediately throw out the biblical case law in the Old Testament. Right? If that's your starting point, you're already behind the eight ball. Uh, to be sure, there are many times in the Old Testament where God's people are instructed in a certain way because of rules and regulations for life uh, related to a pre-Messiah, pre-atonement context. Right? Um, but as scripture tells us, tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, we and the saints in the Old Covenant share a fundamental unity and not a fundamental disunity. So there are things that are different in the New Covenant. Fundamentally, we, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, we both drink, drank the same spiritual drink that they drank from, and that flowed from the same spiritual rock, which was Christ. And so there is that fundamental unity. We both uh, drank from the same spiritual drink. Now, the ceremonial we all know, uh, were different, the rituals were different, uh, the existence of the Levitical priesthood was different, but faith in God and the underlying morality was the same. But when it comes to the civil law portions of the Old Testament law, we need to remember that they were not just for Israel, but for surrounding nations as well. This is another reason why we cannot just simply throw out the Old Testament case law when we think about biblical civil governance. So let's read from Deuteronomy 4, verse... Um, Verse four, uh, 5 through 8. And this is Moses addressing what the Lord has to say to the people of Israel, talking about the laws of God. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, 
Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. So again, Israel had a litany of statutes and rules which were to be a light to the nations as perfect standards of justice. So when we come to this topic of biblical civil governance, we have to understand very clearly that nothing about Christ's atoning work on the cross or the institution of the new covenant authorizes magistrates today to stray from their God-given responsibility as detailed in the case laws, whether that's ruling with impartiality, just scales, due process, equal protections, proportionate penalties, and respect for the limits of civil jurisdiction. These apply to all nations at all times. So that's point number one of Biblical Civil Law 101. Don't just throw out the Old Testament civil case law, okay? Point number two is a biblical understanding of civil law has proper jurisdictional limits placed upon civil government. If you become a civil governor, you don't automatically get total authority from God to order everyone around in every facet of their life so long as you don't command them to sin, right? You don't have authority from God to tell people that they can only wear Nike and not Adidas running shoes. You can't force people to listen to Nickelback. That might be a sin. But, uh, I digress. So let's remember, biblically speaking, according to Romans 13, civil magistrates are servants of God to be appointed from among the people who are put in place for the purpose of punishing evil doers for civil crimes according to the standards of God's law. So let's refresh ourselves from Romans 13, 3 and 4, a, a part of this passage that is often skipped because it's a passage about how we are submit to governing authorities. But listen, verses 3 and 4. For rulers, this is defining who we're submitting to, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Not do, if you do right, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So a ruler's authority is limited to the extent that they are good rulers, as described in this verse. They don't have authorization or authority from God to be evil rulers or to rule in evil ways. Civil government is not the only government in scripture. We, we know that this isn't a carte blanche statement about governance and government. One of the keys of statism is to think of all government as civil government, but we know that there are many other forms of government that God has instituted. So one of those ways is the church. There's church government, there is family government, and government starts with individual self-government. Okay? So there are many different forms of government which God establishes and they are separate institutions. So for example, the civil government is not the instrument of parental discipline of children and they do not hold the power of excommunication. Those are reserved to the family and to the church respectively. They cannot do whatever seems right in their own eyes and they cannot wield the sword for purposes further than that for which they are authorized. They're given no authorization to assume powers which are not delegated to them by God. So even if forms of other forms of government have abdicated, that does not mean that they now get to take on that responsibility. For example, 
They cannot just start, the, the state the, the, or the civil government cannot just start excommunicating people from the church just because the church has abdicated its responsibility in that area of ecclesiastical governance, okay? Now that may happen, but that doesn't make it right. Given that every human authority and institution in scripture has limits to their authority, and given that no authority in scripture has a total mandate to wield their authority in unlimited fashion, in order to establish that a civil magistrate has the God-given authority to force masses of people to stay in their homes for any length of time, one has to prove that authority from scripture. The burden is not on anyone to prove that the magistrate doesn't have such a power. We can't just ask, do authorities exist? We know authorities exist. We must also ask, what are their duties? What are they authorized to do? And what are the limits of their authorization? Magistrates can't just look at the Bible and say to themselves, well, doesn't say I can't make people do that. Guess I'm authorized, right? <clears throat> they can't tell people to run to the town square and cover themselves in mustard and ketchup and then obligate your compliance based on an authority that they have, okay? The same thing applies to all areas of government, family government, uh, officers in the church, elders. The burden is on the one ar arguing for that authorization to exercise a power to prove that that authority exists. And such is the regulative principle of government. Kind of a technical turn, but it's one we could also do another sermon on. So to better understand the true limits of proper civil government, we must look back to the Old Testament's case law as a sort of model for what are crimes and what are sins, because not all sins are crimes and all crimes are sin. Well, I'd say actually all crimes are sin, probably. <laughs> all true crimes. There's a lot of things that are called crime that aren't actually sin. So when you take away the ceremonial elements of the biblical case law in the Old Testament, the ones that other nations would have been blessed to, to imitate, you know, equal scales, just penalties, those restitution, those sorts of things, due process, what you're left with is a very limited and decentralized civil government model. Uh, if you remember, and this wasn't even in my sermon notes, but in uh, uh, 1 Samuel 8, um, Saul is given, uh, or the people are crying out for a king. And um, God warns the people that if you ask this king and you reject this model that I've given you, he's going to tax you, he's going to plunder your goods, he's going to take away your sons and daughters for your servants, he's going to drag them off to war. He's laying out like all this litany of terrible things that are going to happen. And the people are like, yes, yes, make us like other nations. We want this, right? They're, they're begging for it. And um, God makes it very clear that they are reject. This is a rejection of him. This is idolatry for them to do this. So when you so don't think of those laws and those um, those permissions that all the kings had, even in in um, the Old Testament Israel as Ex uh, exemplifying what God's uh, biblical civil gov governance model is. Many of those aspects were a rejection of his rule. Keep that in mind. All right, so it's also true that we don't, so I'm talking about how um, there is a general aspect to this, but, it, but it's also true that we don't have to be able to uh, point word for word to a specific law for every possible scenario for which civil government may be legitimate. So, for example, in biblical case law, God doesn't enumerate every piece of property that constituate, uh, is a constituent of theft for which magistrates can impose sanctions, right? So, theft as a general category is prohibited, but God doesn't obviously enumerate every piece of property. You can't steal a jewel, you can't steal a gold. Theft, right? 
Um, now, these are general principles of governance that we can apply to our present context. We can't say now, today, that Grand Theft Auto, this is an obvious example, is not you know, a, a, a sin or a crime because cars weren't invented back then, right? So there is a level of, okay, we have to take this principle and apply it properly today. And it's here also where we must be careful because though technology has advanced over the centuries and though our understanding of creation has expanded, we have to be cautious not to allow our accommodations for these advances to create whole new categories of authority. So those are the two points that I want to make in regards to Biblical Civil Law 101. Don't throw up the Testament law and remember that there are jurisdictional limits to the power of civil government, okay? So now with that as the foundation, let's dive into the arguments that are being made for the morality of these civil government shutdown orders and see if they pass muster. So what is the case for a civil or ecclesiastical authority expansive enough to include levying mass, mass lockdowns on a people forcing them to stay in their homes, prevent them from pursuing their livelihoods and other pursuits, and compelling total authority with these mass lockdowns with a threat of coercion or violence for non-compliance. There are three main categories of appeal I've seen which are alleged to authorize those in authority to impose sanctions to enforce mass lockdowns. Number one, civil, law, uh, civil laws reg, uh, regulating medical quarantine of the sick in, old, in the Old Testament. Number two, civil laws regulating reckless endangerment in the Old Testament. Number three, ecclesiastical laws requiring Christians to love their neighbors. So, does biblical law really give authorities uh, the power to enforce mass lockdowns and compel compliance with it? So we'll address these one at a time. So number one, biblical case laws regarding quarantine. These, these biblical case laws are found in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. I encourage all of you to sit down. We're not, I was thinking of doing this, but I'm actually not. This is a long slog to read through all of Leviticus 13 and 14. I would encourage all of you to go home and read through it. Before we get into a sampling of this to give you a flavor for what it's talking about, let me say very clearly at the outset that as you read this, the leprosy passages in Scripture do nothing to help support the view that civil magistrates today have the power of forcing mass lockdowns. Most obviously, there simply are no mass lockdowns in the book of Leviticus related to the leprosy law. That's just the beginning. What do we find in Leviticus 13 and 14? Let's read a sampling from Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. This is just going to give you a flavor. It takes a really long time, as I said, to read through the whole chapter. But starting at verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and she, he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This, they had this dynamic where if certain things were met, certain stipulations were met, you were ejected from the covenant community. You had to physically go and stay outside the camp and separate yourselves from the covenant community of God. The gist of this is... Um, the gist of what you get, lots of these kinds of instructions are dealing with leprosy. Throughout these chapters, you see a detailed list of regulations related to leprosy among persons, belongings, and buildings, actually. You can't just think of the translated word leprosy context as having to do with disease, nor can we confuse it with modern Hansen's disease. Think of leprosy in the Bible. Think of the concept of a spreading of toxic physical corruption, whether that manifests itself as sores on the body or destructive mold 
on buildings and belongings. It wasn't the same thing as a disease as we think of it today, medically. Leprosy is not an all-encompassing for all kinds of sicknesses and illness. Coming down with a cold or a fever, etc., did not make you unclean in the same way that this specific leprous blight did, nor did it put you under the same obligations to the code related to leprosy. I'm sure there were things and actions you should take given that, but that's not what's in view here. Those with other kinds of sicknesses were not categorized as unclean, nor was the priest instructed to remove all contagiously sick persons from the camp. Again, something that could have been done, but that's not what is in place here. To the contrary, we will see some with leprosy were specifically told not to be removed from the camp, even when the leprosy covered their entire body. Recognizing the immediate context of the leprosy passages, the section on leprosy is sandwiched between on dietary laws in chapter 11 and 12, and a section on nocturnal emissions and corpse handling in chapter 15. And when you get to this discharge section in chapter 15 of how to handle persons with a discharge, many instructions are given related to what is permitted when this man or person has a discharge. The man was declared unclean, and anyone who touched anything that that man sat on was also declared unclean. The man with a discharge, in order to return to a state of clean, the priest needed to slaughter two turtle doves and offer them as a sacrifice in the tabernacle. It's not hard to see the ceremonial and ritualistic character of the regulations in these passages. The leprosy passages in chapter 13 and 14 encompass the role of the priesthood in managing these cases. Chapter 13, how does the priest manage the cases and the sacrificial requirements for reuse or clothing of buildings or buildings following a leprosy infestation or re-entry into the society for those afflicted. So if leprosy came upon a building, the priest would inspect it. He would see if it came back and if it was still there, the building had to be burned down. If it was gone, they could reuse the building. So there are all these regulations for how do you bring a person back in, clothing back in, buildings back into use if there was leprosy and the priest had to inspect it. Okay? All of these sections, whether we're talking about dietary laws in the, verse, in the chapters preceding the leprosy chapters, leprosy itself, emissions, corpses, etc., those are all replete with concern over the status of an individual or a building as ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean or ceremonially unclean, and how to respond to unclean things which touch clean things, and how to sacrifice at the temple in order to return to a status of clean. Quick aside here and just briefly mention that verse that Melanie read, that chapter that, uh, or that passage that Melanie read from the verse of Hebrews talks about Christ going outside the camp. And it's what happens there is inversed. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, if you, as a clean person, touched an unclean person, then you would be made unclean. But Christ reverses that. He goes outside the camp. When he touches somebody who is unclean, the unclean person becomes clean. He doesn't become unclean. Okay? So that is an amazing sort of you know, aspect I just wanted to point out. It's, it's important to note, though, that as we're going through these regulations in Leviticus, that nowhere is leprosy described as a contagious disease in a medical sense. The, the reason that people were isolated and exiled was not to prevent the person-to-person -person spread of disease, but to prevent the person-to-person -person spread of ceremonial uncleanliness. And those things are not synonymous, those two things. The command to expel unclean persons from the camp was a ceremonial measure. So what was going on in those days was not a medical quarantine of individuals, let alone a society. This was a ceremonial 
quarantine or isolation of ceremonially unclean individuals. As mentioned earlier, you were also quarantined in the same manner if you had a seminal discharge or came into contact with somebody with a discharge or contacted someone who had touched a dead body. This is not contagious disease. Numbers 5, 1 through 4 um, references this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command to the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. So the Lord is, is in the camp and he's, it ma makes reference looking around in the camp for things that are unclean. And if it displeases him, the people would face his judicial judgment for their ceremonial uncleanliness. It continues in verse 4. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. So this whole system was a matter of, as we said, preventing the spread of ceremonial uncleanliness and the resulting wrath from God on all society, not preventing the human to human spread of disease. If you're in any doubt about this, consider that Leviticus 13, 12 through 13, makes it very plain that this was not about keeping a medical condition from spreading. Uh, chapter 13, 12 through 13. And if the leprous disease breaks out in the skin, so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look, and if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It has turned white, and he is clean. So think about that. Those who were covered from head to foot with leprosy over their entire bodies were to be pronounced clean, completely clean. This, so this guy here, he's looking like a snowman. He's covered head to foot in white leprosy, and he is allowed to offer sacrifices, to go to temple, to be included in the covenant community, to do everything that any other clean status person could do. Um, now, why is this? Why is it that the person who is covered from head to foot in leprosy is pronounced clean? Well, we can speculate here, and that's all I'm going to do, but I, and again, look into this for yourself, but I think there are some typological issues here at play. The person who is covered in white as snow leprosy has, had the, has the appearance of cleanliness symbolizing the sinless purity that, uh, that they're aspiring to and what Christ would ultimately bring. Leprosy all over him. And this seems to be why he was designated as ceremonially clean. Um, the phrase white as snow is used a number of times in scripture to indicate holiness and purity. Uh, leprosy is compared to white as snow a number of times. When someone gets leprosy, um, I believe it was, uh, and there are a number of different references, but when Moses uh, pulled his, or was it his wife? Anyways, pulled their hand away. Yeah, it was Moses. And they, it was described, the, the white on his arm as white as snow. Okay, And that's not the only... Um, example, but then remember in, in, in uh, passages like Psalm 51, David says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. In the uh, transfiguration, Christ's appearance was said to be uh, appearance of uh, his clothing, the appearance of white as snow. Again, this is more speculative, of course, but there are some breadcrumbs for you to follow in your own study if you'd like to. In any case, what does become clear in this system is that it wasn't designed to be a medical disease containment system. As Gary North writes in this aforementioned commentary in Leviticus regarding the leprosy laws, quote, what must be stressed here is that the, this law was not based on considerations of public biological health. It was based on public judicial health. So they weren't concerned for these purposes with biological 
contagion. They were concerned with judicial contagion. They remained in a state of ceremonial uncleanliness. God would bring real judgment and wrath upon them. Spreading of ceremonial uncleanliness um, was okay. And this really makes sense when you remember that in those days, God's people were to live within the land that was declared as holy, the land of Canaan, and then as a covenant community, they were to be holy in all their conduct. It meant that they had to act within the confines of God's unique prescriptions for living in his presence. And that meant a temple sacrifice system, which required Israelites to be ceremonially clean in order to present their offerings in the Levitical priestly system. Separating the clean from the unclean was a means of devoting themselves for the service of God, to God, and for the worship of God. Israel was to live in the land of Canaan, and they were to live in the land in a manner that kept it undefiled in God's presence. Typologically speaking, the removal of the unclean points forward to the removal of sin from our lives. These rituals and ceremonial observances were types and shadows pointing forward to the new covenant era of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Again, there is nowhere in this passage that instructs us how to stop an outbreak of a biological form. So what was all this for? The, the leprosy regulations were a unique set of provisions which were to be upheld by the Levitical priests and I would say, contrary to North, not as the establishment as a transcendent principle for civil government to uh, ma conduct mass lockdowns or interfere broadly in the daily lives of its citizens. Leprosy, clean, unclean laws were specifically for life in the Holy Land of Canaan to facilitate the continuance of the temple worship system and to prevent God's karam judgment upon them. So does that mean that it's for us to keep separate for those who are biologically contagious? No. Not what the leprosy laws were about, and we can't point to a transcendent principle of lepr leprosy laws to, to say to the magistrate, you are authorized to conduct these mass lives. That's just not what it was about. And to make this leap is not to apply biblical principles to um, today's world, it's to create an entirely new category of civil government law. Even if the leprosy laws were a disease containment system in part, and I believe that they were not, it is still it still doesn't justify mass lockdowns of those who are not clinically um, manifesting symptoms. There still needed to be clinical evidence of leprosy, but again, that's the, beside the point. I don't think that's what it was about. It was partly a, a disease containment system. It was still not a mass lockdown. It was on an individual basis based on verifiable facts of, of, um, of clinical uh, harm and disease. We also might ask, what other areas where a civil declaration of the sciences settled may be cited by a magistrate who then presumes for himself God-given license to remove almost any right he can fathom, all with approval of the church on this same basis? So again, that's sort of a side point, but regardless of the concerning precedent that would be set uh, by allowing for these authorizations, the leprosy laws in Leviticus provide no license for magistrate today to impose these lockdowns. All right, so that's the first argument for lockdowns. The second argument, thank you, John. The second argument that gets used to support the legitimacy of civil government lockdowns has to do with biblical case laws of reckless endangerment. Okay, so this comes as an appeal to a very important case law in Exodus. How many of you heard of the Goring Ox principle in Exodus? It's one of the case laws, um, and it sets forth principles for liability and punishment 
related to deaths caused by uh, recklessness and accidents, when an accident happens or when someone's being reckless. So there are other passages with, which deal with similar topics, such as the parapet principle in Deuteronomy 22. It's another one to look up on your own time. And the accidental flying axe head death in Deuteronomy 19. But the growing up passage is probably the most commonly referred to one. It's the, uh, one of the oldest and most cited cases in the development of common law. Over like many hundreds of years, this principle through Western history especially has been pointed to the Goring Ox principle. It's in the, usually in the footnotes somewhere. It reads, let's, let's read it together. So it's in, um, it's in Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 and 29. But when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned and has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. Exodus 21, 28, 29. So this passage tells us another thing. First of all, it tells us that there is a reasonable expectation of risk that should be expected as a normal operating procedure in society without legal liability. Even domesticated such as oxen, domesticated animals such as oxen, in general, do gore from time to time. And the rancher, in this case, cannot be held liable if one of his oxen gores someone to death, despite possessing the knowledge, generally speaking, that occasionally oxen do pose a danger to people. When an ox which has not been known to gore in the past kills someone, however, this is, uh, or not however, um, it's considered an accident and a tragedy but not any form of recklessness on the part of the rancher, and so it is not a crime. He had general knowledge about the danger of goring oxen in general, again, but no specific knowledge regarding any of his oxen in particular. So we live in a world, and we have to recognize this, with certain dangers inherent to it. We know that accidents happen. We know that seasonal viruses exist. We know that by pulling out of our driveway and going out into the world and conducting our daily affairs, we are knowingly exposing ourselves to all kinds of danger. As it relates to seasonal viruses, which do differ in their potency, we can contract them or spread them ourselves unknowingly. They usually don't kill, but we know statistically they can in rare circumstances. That is to be accepted in a world under the curse where the dominion mandate must march forward Nonetheless, we can't stop having oxen because they occasionally gore people to death. Okay? For the broader purposes of the flourishing of mankind, we have, we have to move forward. We have general knowledge about general dangers that exist. However, if a rancher's ox gores someone, it is also made clear that the owner must be responsible and ensure this particular animal, which has already demonstrated a capacity for killing, does not kill again. Should this particular oxen kill again, or ox, singular, the owner would be put to death as well unless a ransom is imposed by the victim's family and that can be paid in, the, in that case. So if you are the owner of this oxen, the safest and most responsible thing you can do is to put that animal to death or at least impound it, right? In any case, this principle against recklessness is very clear, but it is not overly broad. The key factor is that while you are not liable for accidents that happen, it's not inherently dangerous. It may be 
liable if it happens again, given certain circumstances. So there's a myriad of ways that we could apply this law and these law principles in today's world, but we have to be careful not to apply it too liberally or cavalierly. Otherwise, we'll begin to treat behaviors that are not inherently dangerous, which are intrinsic to the furtherance of the dominion mandate as behavior which is inherently dangerous. In the same way, you can be liable if you get loaded drunk and fly a plane into a mountain and you're the only one that survives and everyone else dies. You have knowingly introduced a specific variable, drunkenness, making an activity that is not inherently dangerous, dangerous. The Goring Ox was never meant to categorically discourage people from engaging in behavior that carried some level of risk to others, risks that are simply a normative part of living in this world. The rule wasn't that all oxen were to be caged or even fenced in. The case was meant to provide recourse for victims for reckless individuals who knowingly introduced them to danger with specific knowledge of how they had done so. And that's very key. The argument which appeals to the Goring Ox principle to justify compliance with mass lockdown orders is that if you know that it is possible you could have a contagious disease without being aware, and you know that it's possible such a disease could kill someone in the future, you are potentially endangering your fellow man by going near them. And then further, to not abide by the lockdown during a pandemic, even if you are asymptomatic, makes you retroactively liable for any lives that are lost as a result of you unknowingly infecting someone. And so if you think about it, this example really flagrantly fails the test of the key factors in the Goring Ox principle. For the asymptomatic and for the person who, does, who has not been tested that day, there is no specific direct knowledge of the existence of the virus in your body, and there's no specific direct knowledge of the circumstances in which you definitely spread the virus, definitely leading to somebody's death. The lockdown does not just apply to one person's specific situation, but preemptively shuts down an entire category of human activity. I've heard the arguments made that because of coronavirus, for even the asymptomatic to walk down the street in public is an inherently dangerous activity as it is allegedly akin to having two canisters attached to your chest, one spewing oxygen and one spewing poison, and you aren't sure if the poison canister is turned off or not. Except that that is always the case and has always been the case every season as long as contagious viral illnesses have existed. You could inadvertently infect someone with a myriad of different viruses you will never know you had. You could conceivably open up your door to receive an Amazon package and cause a virus to flow across to your neighbor. You are not knowing, you do not have specific knowledge about what you've done. And this doesn't transform regular commerce and human activity into an inherently dangerous activity. That's like saying that the oxen rancher should be liable anytime any of his oxen gore someone because he has general knowledge that oxen in general sometimes kill people. This is assuredly not what the goring ox principle teaches. The insufficiency of this example is compounded when you consider that in our present lockdown situation, this would also apply to essential workers, like the grocery store employees who go to work without any symptoms but in, end up infecting people without any knowledge. They would be guilty, if this were, logic were to be applied, of the same blood guilt as the non-essential workers if we we're appealing to this Goring Ox principle. There was a reason this original law about goring ox originally came about. Undoubtedly, some ranchers did knowingly leave uh, known goring oxen unattended. If those oxen then gored again, even with witnesses testifying that it was the same oxen in both cases, um, 
there was no recourse for the victim if it was the first time it happened. Okay, but we cannot derive a license for magistrates to compel conformity with mass lockdowns from the Goring Ox principle. All right, so that's talked about leprosy, talked about the Goring Ox principle, two arguments so far. Now, the third one is our obligation to love our neighbors. So let's think about that one. In both the Old Testament and New, we are told to love our neighbors as ourselves. A lot of times people will think of love your neighbor as yourself as some new commandment that Jesus gave, but it was a very old commandment. You can find it in Leviticus. Some have applied this broad command today to bring binding moral obligations upon their Christian neighbors in terms of compelling their compliance to sheltering at home. The argument here goes that since we should care about the vulnerable the most and the elderly and those in potentially overcrowded hospitals are most vulnerable, loving our neighbor means staying and sheltering at home. They say further that to depart from this means valuing money, convenience, and property over people. The idea is, even if technically governments don't have the authority to force Christians to do the right thing, which is allegedly sheltering at home, if Christians abdicate their responsibility to stay home, they have no right to complain about government overreach. In fact, we are told to do so is hypocrisy. Some people even boldly assert that should we have not locked down the country, so many working people would have died of coronavirus that our economy would not have enough healthy people to function properly anyways. And the guesstimates and projections from that are all over the map, from conservative to sober to off the wall of how many people would die without lockdowns. And this is compounded when you factor in that people who decry the lockdown uh, protesters, as we were you know, protesting here in Warrington about the lockdowns, and call us grandma killers, but then simultaneously applaud the George Floyd protesters, which by the way I applaud, um, and to the extent that they are peaceful, and call them freedom fighters, right? But other people who protest lockdowns are grandma killers. That's for another sermon. <laughs> So if we're engaging in the exercise of laying out the pragmatic calculus regarding the connection between staying at home and how some elderly people and hospitals could possibly be affected, we can also think of other effects of staying at home if one's behavior, if your behavior is replicated. You don't have any, you're not aware of any symptoms, you're fine, and if everybody just copied you and your behavior, how would that, what are the ramifications of that? Seems we have barely scratched the surface in terms of local, national, and global ramifications of the civil government shutdowns and millions of people staying home. What we've seen so far has been monumental, from unpaid rents and mortgages to historic job losses to empty pantries, global supply chain and logistical disasters, currency devaluation, soaring debt, destroyed livelihoods, increased government dependency, delayed medical procedures, psychological turmoil, domestic abuse, increased drug and alcohol addiction, the prospect of global famine, increased social unrest, and on and on it goes, right? Much of this fallout cannot be measured and will never be measured. How do you measure the toll that elevated stress levels contribute to hypertension-related deaths, for example? The rise in later stage cancers because of the lack of availability of earlier screening. How do you measure the intergenerational effect of the extra beating a spouse or child takes in a domestic abuse situation during a mandatory stay-at-home order? How do you measure the impact of not getting that procedure that was supposed to prevent a cascade of worsening health outcomes because your knee replacement surgery was designated as elective? The business that was never started or the job that was never created? What about the interrupting supply chain logistics, which help maintain the tenuous access many third world countries have to food 
food supplies and millions of food vulnerable people. The effect of rising food prices. These questions are merely the tip of the iceberg. By the same logic, the stay at home, uh, shelter at home crowd is using, an argument can be made that staying at home, if we're going by that kind of argument, is in fact selfish and callous towards the plight of those affected by the societal behavior that you advocate. Either way, it is by no means a given that society-wide lockdown is the right thing or the safest thing. And if we want to play the my expert versus your expert game, there are plenty of expert uh, epidemiologists, virologists, economists on both sides. Now again, this country does deserve, as we said at the beginning, everything it gets for the evil we have engaged in as a nation. But failing to engage in a self-imposed lockdown would not be one such example. The more pressing issue is what does God's law require of us? Many Christians would say that even if there is no law basis for lockdown on the basis of the leprosy laws, the love your neighbor command has to compel us to go lockdown and regard it as legitimate. First problem with this is something we so often forget is that love is the fulfilling of the law. We are told over and again in scripture that love means keeping God's commandments. 1 John 5, 1 and 2. The law tells us how we should act in order to show love to our neighbor. How many hateful things have been done to people in the name of loving them, or even worse, in the interest of making people love other people through coercive force. We think that throwing humans in cages for decades for nonviolent victimless crimes related to marijuana use is loving to society and a more humane way of dealing with criminals. We think, or criminals, right? We think that giving women the right to choose is the most loving thing we can do for them, right? We have forgotten God's law, and thus we have not been loving. We think that confiscating property to build an education system for children and, and a military to spread democracy around the world is loving. What we have actually done is exhibited hatred to our neighbors because our actions were not lawful. Transcendent biblical law is instruction on how to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not loving to... To, uh, to your neighbor as a civil magistrate to go beyond the limits of the authority that God has given you. It's not loving to your neighbor to forcibly remove their freedoms to pursue their livelihood because of a virus. It's not loving to place a moral burden of lockdown on your symptomless neighbor who is trying to provide for himself and his family. Do not violate your own conscience. And if you feel the need to stay home or social distance or wear a mask, that is your prerogative. But no such power is given to this government, either civil or ecclesiastical, to mandate. To do so is not, level, uh, is not lawful, and thus it is not loving. So where do we go from here? Well, we as God's people have an incredible opening to teach the nations about the beauty of Christ and the soundness of his law the, uh, through this whole coronavirus ordeal. The more this heavy-handed statism manifests itself through the coronavirus lockdowns, the more this false kingdom is exposed as being devoid of all moral, consistent substance. People will be looking for answers, consistent answers, so stand ready with the word of God to apply these truths in the particulars of life. What an opportunity that is, and God forbid that we should squander it. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and be taught this morning. We pray that you would help us to faithfully uh, exhibit these, uh, these teachings in our daily lives, Father. Thank you so much for sending your son to redeem sinners, to transform them into servants of God who love your law and who can teach others about your son. 
We pray that you would bless our efforts and that you would prevent the lockdowns from being seen as legitimate and moral in the eyes of the church and in the world. We pray that for the people who are affected by the lockdowns, who have lost jobs, who have lost money, who are now uh, vulnerable to all sorts of injustice, we pray that th that oppression would cease and that, Lord, we would have no part in it. So, Lord, for all these things, we thank you, we bless you, and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.